Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about story and narrative, about how it's what our lives are made of and what persists after we're gone. I've been thinking about history and the challenges of getting it right, getting it down accurately, and the constraints and powers of the written word. My guest today is Paisley Rechtal, author of The Broken Country on Trauma, Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam, winner of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Award for Creative Nonfiction. Ms. Rechtal is the Poet Laureate of Utah and a professor of English at the University of Utah. She's received numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Fulbright Fellowship to North Korea. Welcome, Paisley, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with what it means and how you got to be the Poet Laureate of Utah. <laughs> um, well, we'll start with uh, the Poet Laureate of Utah. I was a bit surprised. Um, I had been asked to apply for this position, um, and a number of other people had been asked as well. And I'm fairly, by Utah standards, new to the area. I've only been here 14 years. Um, and so I wasn't expecting it um, at all, but I was very honored and delighted to to receive the call that I, I was chosen. I was chosen May, so I've just started out. Um, and every poet laureate has a project that they do, and um, the term is for four years, so it's it's usually a pretty hefty project. And so I was planning to create a map, a literary map of Utah, basically a web archive that goes through all of the poets and writers that have been part of this state or this region, and um, to kind of continue to question what it is to uh, be influenced by a place. So I'm starting with some of the usual suspects, the Terry Tempest Williams and the Wallace Stegners, but I'm also thinking about Topaz and the internment camp here and how that is a place that drew writers maybe unwillingly here or created writers um, out of that that time period. So I'm going to be um, finding those writers as well and mapping them on the on the site. And you've got uh, five poetry collections and two works of nonfiction. Um, I'm kind of venture to say that this latest uh, piece of work, The Broken Country, is kind of a combination maybe of the two. There definitely seem to be elements of of poetry and philosophy um, combined with the nonfiction work. It is in some ways building on some of the work that I've done in nonfiction, but The Broken Country is also a huge departure for me because um, as primarily a poetry person and a poet, um, I'm not used to to thinking about an entire book-length work um, in, in the kinds of ways that this book was asking me to do. I did a lot of oral history interviews. Um, I did a lot of kind of classic journalism work. There's science writing. There's, as you point out, um, philosophical inquiry or cultural studies. Um, and I do think a lot about poetry because I'm thinking a lot about how it is that we narrativize trauma, the stories that we tell about it. And poems are also ways that we record and think about and write about wars um, as well. So I do take some of the scholarship, uh, poetry scholarship that I've done in my past and, and apply it to this as well. But um, I'm also thinking a lot about history and thinking about the different waves of Southeast Asian refugees and Vietnam veterans who returned home from war uh, after, you know, 1975 and, and Vietnam. And um, that was, it was a huge shift for me. And I have to say, it was, it was more than a little terrifying. Well, it's funny because I was thinking, I was reading it, I'm like, okay, she's a philosopher, she's a journalist, she's an anthropological historian, on top of like focusing on, um, you know, social justice and sociology. And so it was definitely seemed like a combination of all those aspects. So why this book? And why this crime? Well, I happened to be living in Hanoi at the time um, when this crime happened. And the crime, um, for the listeners out there who don't know, it's a very small crime that took place in Salt Lake City, but it took place in a grocery store near my house where I often go shopping. A young Vietnamese man, about 32 at the time, uh, was homeless and had problems with drug and alcohol addiction, but he walked into the grocery store, purchased a knife, and then walked out into the parking lot and began deliberately... 
uh, intentionally stab, stabbing white men while yelling things that made everybody around him aware or assume that this was in retribution for the Vietnam War. And I happened to be living in Hanoi at the time, uh, right next to the Vietnam Military History Museum. And every day I would go there because they had this insane kind of sculpture memorial um, to both the French and Viet, um, French and American wars. Uh, and they were pieces of planes from those two wars that had been sort of layered together in this monumental kind of sculpture. Um, I'm the daughter of a non-combat Vietnam veteran and the niece of a combat veteran from Vietnam. And I'd sort of grown up with that war in our background, but not ever really thinking about it. And when I was reading about the crime, because it, it surfaced on social media, I was really struck because I thought, well, you know, how is it that we memorialize wars? Uh, what kind of artistic reproduction, what kind of metaphors do we use to talk about combat over time? What really struck me about the crime also was that, you know, he was um, not somebody who would have experienced the war directly. He was born three years after Saigon fell and after our involvement ended there. But of course, the Vietnam War, as we imagine it, continued to spread and continued to create um, widespread chaos throughout the region. And Kitan Lee, the stabber, also was one of the refugees later on to um, the United States, to where I live in Utah. And um, he came in probably around 1978 or in the 80s, the early 80s. And I was really struck by how little I knew about what that experience must have been like and how little attention we have paid nationally to our allies and those we helped essentially to displace in the Vietnam War. And so all of these things sort of came together, and I found myself fascinated by the crime, and I thought, I'll just do a little investigative research. And it just opened up more and more and more, because the more I spent time asking questions and looking around, the more I realized that the story of trauma is an intergenerational story. And um, when we think about a war as being over, we don't take into consideration all of the many people who continue to be affected by war long after the fighting has stopped. And prior to writing the book, do you feel like you had a sense of how the war had affected your upbringing or your family? You talk in the book about uh, seeing the Vietnam Memorial with your family together in that experience. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it because the beauty of being young is that you think largely about your immediate um, circumstances. But I did visit the Vietnam uh, Veterans Memorial by Maya Lin in Washington, D.C., just a couple of years, essentially, after it opened. Uh, and I saw it with, you know, my family members who had, you know, two of them had had a sort of direct, um, a, you know, relationship with the Vietnam War. But I hadn't thought about it largely because um, I'm half Chinese, and um, this is probably a very common story among immigrant families. Silence is sort of the rule. And my uncle, who fought in Vietnam, uh, fought in the army, and was Chinese American, is Chinese American, and um, never spoke about his time there. Though he uh, got the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, he's you know very well decorated, um, and but he never ever spoke about it. And there was no sense of that war being something that shaped him or shaped the family. But there are some interesting sort of health issues that he's had that no one can quite diagnose. There are, um, though he himself, from what I can tell, has never suffered from PTSD, I think it's interesting that he has kept those stories so private. And this, in some ways, silence also shapes us just as much as narratives shape us. Um, and so uh, part of me, you know, writing this book was thinking about um, some of the stories that he might want to tell. And he told me he would never want to tell these stories. But at the same time, I just think that the, what he did and the kinds, um, the kinds of fighting he must have experienced, especially as a Chinese-American man, fighting others that must have looked like him at a time when um, the loyalty of Chinese-Americans was still being questioned um, back at home, I think is historically quite a rich topic. And it's interesting because it almost seems that your father's experience had more of an impact on your family and on his life after the war, maybe outwardly, than your uncles did, even though they had such varying experiences in the war. 
this is true. I mean, one of the things that I ended up thinking a lot about that I never thought I would think about was the role that um, labor and capitalism play uh, in our ideas of relocation after war. So, in and in that sense, this affects both you know post nineteen seventy five refugees as well as veterans. When my father returned from his uh, non-combat tour of Vietnam, he found um, it was very hard to get the kind of work that he had been training for. He had been training to become an academic. Um, and so for many years, was sort of um, adrift, trying to find different types of, of, of work that could pay and to support a, a family, basically. And for him, uh, this became a source of bitterness. And it was interesting that when the Vietnam War was brought up in our house, it was largely as a kind of uh, screed against liberals that didn't go to fight. Um, and the sense that, that it, it put men like my father in an economically precarious position because all of the things that he wanted to do, those jobs were taken. And whether or not that's a fair assessment or not, that's certainly how my father felt. And it was something that we all felt essentially growing up um, and living with him was a, a sense of deep disappointment around that. But what's also interesting is that when you think about some of the Southeast Asian refugees when they came here, work was a big issue, um, how to put them into the workforce at the same time not um, having them threaten, quote-unquote, the livelihoods of other uh, Americans. And, of course, you're also integrating a lot of people with much you know, less education, many fewer job skills, a lot of farmers uh, being relocated. And so you get sort of large groups of young men who cannot be quickly um, assimilated into what we would consider a capitalist mode of production that makes them sort of productive citizens. Um, and it created a lot of resentment and a lot of um, frustration in the United States. I mean, when Vietnamese Americans first came, there was a, a great sense of support because we said these are people who are our allies. But later on, that changed, and the narrative became, these are people who are taking our welfare, these are people who are taking our homes, uh, low-income housing, and they didn't fight for us, quote-unquote, which was, I thought, a very interesting argument made against them. So one of the interesting, fascinating, really, um, side effects about thinking about this project was to think about how we think about labor as a major part of what it is to be American, um, and what it means to assimilate back or be relocated back into American culture. And you talk about that even with one of the victims of Lee's crime, that lies crime, that uh, the doctors kept saying to him, oh, well, you'll be back to work soon. And that that was yeah. their sort of primary focus, and it was such a disconnect for him. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, is fascinating for me, again, was when I was speaking to the people who had been stabbed, Kelton Barney and Timothy DeJulis. Timothy DeJulis was, uh, his life was utterly changed by the fact that he'd been stabbed in the brain by a Keaton Lee. Um, he had to go, you know, undergo this five-hour craniotomy, and he had multiple surgeries, a lot of um, physical therapy. But the, the mantra that the doctors kept saying to him to make him feel better was, don't worry, you can go back to work soon which Tim thought was um, a little absurd. He was like, I, you know, I've just, my entire, my livelihood has been taken from me. My personality has changed. My memories are utterly scrubbed. And I'm literally learning how to walk again, talk again. Um, I'm, I'm basically growing up <laughs> like a child again, trying to get used to this new body. And all you can think about is, uh, let's get me back to work. He was like, I want some time to sit and process the crime. And I think that that's one of the things that becomes interesting about how we narrativize war and we narrativize trauma as well, which is that as a culture, we're not terribly good about thinking about the long-term effects of traumatic circumstances. We want things to be better now. We want things to be over now. And we prefer, in some ways, to shroud the difficult with silence rather than to sit with something that's really uncomfortable um, and to let people heal in ways that might be more on a rhythm <laughs> that they need. Um, and, you know, it's usually done in the service of, well, we want to help you, but it also has the effect of trying to erase very momentous events that happen in our lives to sort of suggest to us subtly that doesn't matter. What matters is, can you be productive for us? 
So let's talk a little bit about the assimilation of the Vietnamese refugees. And I was surprised at the number of refugees. To me, that was staggering. I had had no idea that so many Vietnamese were brought over. And then also was was um, surprising and, and I guess sort of, um, I don't know, disappointing, but... but um, the idea that the way that the people were brought in and then separated out of their communities and their their families sometimes and put in places like Utah. Yes, this was, you know, when we have this debate now about taking in refugees and the huge numbers of refugees, if we look at this historically, the numbers of Syrian refugees that we've been thinking about bringing in and have brought in are a drop in the bucket compared to the numbers, the sheer waves of Southeast Asians that came in. Post-1975, there were three waves, um, totaling uh, over time basically about close to a million uh, refugees. So we had um, the first wave that came over post-1975. These were generally more educated. Um, they had ties to the U.S. military. They were um, wealthier. They had more resources. And so they they came over very quickly. They were followed by the second and third wave of Southeast Asian refugees, the boat people, as we call them. Um, the second wave happened around 1978. Um, the third wave happened towards the middle of the 80s. Um, these are people um, who are characterized by having far fewer resources, less education, uh, less economic opportunities. Some of them were illiterate. Um, they were Hmong tribes people that were brought into Laotians as well. Um, and then also people who had, had just gotten out of re-education camps, had been tortured viciously, and also Amerasians. So it was a very mixed bag of um, classes, people, experiences. These are people who also had to live for sometimes up to a year in refugee camps uh, littered throughout Asia or in you know, um, Southeast Asia. And um, when it comes to the relocation experience on American soil, there's two ways you can look at it. Uh, one is that at the time, the theory of assimilation was how do we get people to become as American as possible, as fast as possible. And one of the thing, things that they were thinking was, well, you don't allow them to create, quote-unquote, ethnic enclaves. So a lot of the places where the Vietnamese were originally settled were in very white places like Utah, Provo being a big center. And there's a number of reasons for that, too. Of course, the Mormons were eager to help out. Um, it's also a proselytizing, potentially, um, endeavor. The Catholic Society also was involved with this, too. But this is a way of sort of, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, um, breaking the back of cultures. Um, you would separate out families. You would basically slot them into jobs that and, and areas that they wouldn't necessarily have chosen on their own. This didn't last for very long. As soon as uh, a lot of the Southeast Asians got on their feet financially, many of them gravitated to centers where there were known to be many more um, Southeast Asian refugees and created you know, those quote-unquote ethnic enclaves. But what this did was, I think, initially what the U.S.'s initial impulse was to try to hasten and, and hurry up the process of becoming American, what that essentially did was treat these people um, in ways that put them at, I think, a larger kind of cultural risk. Um, there's a real disorientation that comes with living in a place where you don't know the language well. Most of these people were not given extensive language training and certainly didn't have it in their backgrounds. Um, where you don't know about the currency, you don't know about the cultural values, and where you feel incredibly and culturally isolated, and you've just come from a place where you don't trust the police and you don't trust the government. And now you are thrown solely into a place where you are being asked to trust government programs and potentially go to police or medical institutions if you have any questions. So you get uh, an incredible amount of isolation, I think, in these communities, which means that if you have problems with trauma and mental health issues, um, problems with assimilating that war experience into your current life, those can only become exacerbated. When you talk throughout the book about a uh, sense of identity and the loss of a sense of identity or a sense of misidentity and, and belonging and the lack of those feelings within some of these communities. How important do you think that is and, and why? Well, this is, 
this this part of the research really spoke to me personally because, um, as I said, you know, half my family is Chinese. I, I'm in the child, the grandchild of immigrants on both sides. I'm Chinese and Norwegian. And um, the story of assimilation is the story of my family, too, and no one is immune to it. Um, you know, the idea of trying to get in, going to another country and trying to fit in as fast as possible creates a lot of stress, and I've seen it. I've seen it um, a number of times. I mean, even though my mother was born in the United States and so was my father, my mother for, certainly um, experienced the idea of constantly be see, being seen as an outsider, having people speak to her in pidgin uh, because they didn't expect that she would be educated or, or could speak back um, and, and full sentences in English, uh, and the kind of rage that she lived with and the kind of constant and unspoken um, frustration of living day to day with a kind of racism that um, I-, I witnessed and I've experienced a little myself. And so part of that, I think, made me very sympathetic uh, of what was certainly a far harder experience for the Southeast Asian refugees that I had interviewed and spoken to. I mean, these are people who um, they were seen as enemies of war, even though they were South Vietnamese. And um, they had lost, you know, uh, uh, unlike my own um, family, they had lost a country. Um, You know, my parents, my grandparents could imagine a country to which their family actually still belonged. But the South Vietnamese who came here, though the geography may still exist as a landmass, that country is gone. Um, the landmarks that they knew are also erased or changed. Um, the language has been changed, too. And so um, it was fascinating to talk to people who felt that they were utterly disoriented at a fundamental level, and their identity had to reside in their parents' memories. And that's something so different from my own experience, but that idea of yourself exists in a fabricated place that's only accessible to someone else's imagination, it's often traumatized. I think that's something we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But um, I think it's, it's to me, a, a fascinating place, and maybe as a poet it spoke to me in a, in a surprising way. Well, I was going to say, you, you clearly spend a lot of time thinking about it. And, and I think it's, it's one of the three prongs because that's the narrative of the individual. And how does the narrative of this refugee be created when they don't have a connection to that country and they, it's being created through the narratives of their family members and their community? And throughout the book, it seems you're creating a narrative around the crime and you're then also creating, in conjunction with that, a narrative around the war. So I want to come back and talk about that in depth when we, when we um, after the break. Uh, this is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and thank you for joining us. We're speaking today to Paisley Rechtal, the author of The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial, community radio, Catch em Idaho, streaming live at kdpifm.org 24-7. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, speaking with author, we got to add a lot more to author, author, historian, social justice, journalist, um, he's Lee Rechtal, uh, author of The Broken Country, a number of works of poetry and other nonfiction works. So we were talking about narrative, and I think we'll we'll spend the second half of the show talking about narrative in depth, um, its effects and its constraints and and all of that. And within the book, you really focused on developing and understanding, creative a narrative for the crime, for the refugees from Vietnam, and for the Vietnam War itself, and looking at sort of the narratives that have already been created in depth with film and with the way that it's been portrayed. Was that a new project? I mean, had you been thinking prior to this crime really about the narrative of the Vietnam War? I hadn't. Uh, but when I started writing about it, it suddenly struck me that narrative was the heart of the story, the problem. And there's a paradox inherent to narrative. One is that if you describe an event, it's a great way of getting other people 
to imagine it, to emotionally identify with it, to follow you, and to be changed by that story. Um, I remember when I was a kid, we used to have Holocaust survivors come every year to our school and tell us about their experiences in the camp. And they were riveting, and they were terrifying, but, and they were incredibly moving. And, and that was incredibly important work that they did. But it was all based on the idea of, if we tell you this story, you can imagine it, you will take this story seriously, you will remember it, and you will make sure that something like this never happens again. So that's, that's the hope of narrative, right? To share our experiences in a way that other people can learn from. But there's also a problem with narrative, too, which is that oftentimes you have to create a story out of what are essentially jumbled facts. Most of us live our lives in a sense of general chaos, right? There's no protagonist or antagonist. There's no beginning, middle, or end. Just more and more things happen to us. But narrative and writing, um, and as a writer I know this, you have to construct timelines. You have to construct uh, reasons, causes, and effects, and psychological reality. And in that sense, you manipulate things. And when we come to the Vietnam War and the ways that we have narrativized the Vietnam War, there's a consistency to our narrative. One is that, um, you know, our best films and television programs tend to show Americans behaving fairly badly. Uh, and on the one hand, that's great, right? It sort of questions the, wor- the work that we did abroad, and it questions the um, impact that we had, and it certainly reframes us as being you know, heroes, you know, wartime heroes from World War II to something far more complex. But on the other hand, it still continues to erase the presence and the power of Southeast Asians. Um, it, it negates their own agency. In many of the films that I remember seeing as a kid, um, most of the Southeast Vietnamese, um, they, they, they don't even speak. You know, sometimes they're reduced to a single scream or a babble. They don't have a kind of agency or presence. And so... Um, what we end up doing is is inherently glorifying ourselves, even as we're saying we're behaving badly. But, hey, at least we can portray ourselves beha- behaving badly. Um, and I think that when when we think about those consistent portrayals of how we look at refugees or the Vietnamese, we often see them as um, incoherent, uh, childlike, uh, infantilized dependents. We don't see them as people. We don't see them as uh, people like us. And um, when we've got over 400 films and you know narratives, essentially, of Vietnam, that takes a toll. That, that, that creates uh, an expectation of how we're going to look at refugees in general. And it also reframes, in some ways, how we want to see ourselves and how we want to see our involvement in that war. You you say in the book, The Broken Country, in some ways the war itself is both invisible and unassimilable. We don't necessarily remember its specifics, even as we constantly invoke it. And there seems to be a parallel between the statements like that about the war and our memories of it and the experience of the refugees and their ability to assimilate. Yeah, I mean, I think this also speaks to that kind of paradox around the narrativizing of great traumas like war um, or like being essentially relocated uh, outside of your will, there is something that we are asking people to communicate that really can't fully be communicated. Uh, And I think it's one of the reasons why victims of trauma, people with PTSD, return repeatedly to the story of their traumatization because they sense that something has not been expressed. And I think it's because at some level that something cannot be expressed. Um, As much as I would love to hear my uncle's stories of the war, I'm fairly certain that even if he told those stories, there would be a, a great sense of dissatisfaction on his part because he would probably feel like he still wasn't able to tell to tell me something real about what happened to him. Something is always outside of language, and I think we all experience that. The greatest experiences of our life, whether they're great joy or great pain, somehow always lie just outside of language. And yet it is amusing, I guess if that's the word, um, to say that most therapists will encourage people, veterans or people who are traumatized in general, to 
go back and narrativize those stories um, as if somehow that's going to resolve something. But it doesn't. It always, it's, it's, it's rather like our war memorials that we create out of stone or glass or whatever materials that we choose. They are ultimately fabricated representations. They are metaphors, but they are not the thing itself. And I don't think that ever really satisfies us. Well, it's interesting because I wanted to talk about healing and the ideas of catharsis and conclusion and ordering the memories. And you talk in the book about imagining a final resting place for the war. And I was wondering, you know, is there really one? And if there were, what would it be? And is that productive? Because even now in the world of psychology and neuroscience, they're finding that repeating stories and bringing stories out, that there's this real balance between letting a repressed memory come to the surface and then putting it out into the open, but then leaving it alone, that when we tell these stories over and over and over again, it actually is really harmful because more synapses are and connections are made and it's really solidified into our psyches and it can have both emotional and, and physical negative impacts. And yet by driving something on the flip side of the coin down and not bring it into the light, it's, you know, eating away and having these, these negative impacts as well. So maybe we can focus on why and how we create stories. And and if you look at, at what has happened last week in Las Vegas with the mass shooting, and the continuing attempts to sort of define a motive and create an explanation so that we can categorize and maybe isolate and reason away the experience. Um, This is what you're doing throughout the book in The Broken Country when you focus on the crime, to really discern, you know, what happened, what was the motive, um, who was responsible Yeah, this is this is the question. And the short answer is I don't know what true healing looks like and and what we should do. Um and I'll have a very long and complicated answer in a minute, but I um speaking for a minute about the Las Vegas shootings, there's something extraordinarily um I guess practical is one way to say it. American might be another way to say it. Uh where the obsession is with trying to find, as you point out, an answer, a final resting place for uh, a reason. And I, I think part of it is this, this fantasy, ultimately, that there is such a thing as perfect protection, uh, that if we were to isolate whatever gene, whatever series of circumstances uh, has effect that affect people negatively, we can somehow prevent violent crimes, um, violent family legacies from occurring. And, I mean, it's a beautiful sort of fantasy, but the, the fact is no one, no one knows. The research that I've done, I know people, people constantly ask, well, okay, we have all these therapists and we, we have all of these, you know, profilers. Um, why can't, why aren't we better at determining who's going to become a, a, a mass shooter? Someone's going to go out like Keaton Lee and randomly stab people. Um, and the, the answer is that they just don't know. We don't. We can't ever do that. Trauma, as I write in the book, is both a genetic and a cultural wound, and that's what makes it so messy. It's genetic in the sense that it can literally rewire us. Um, it, it, it changes our RNA, which gets passed down to the generations as they're discovering via mice. But then they've also done lots of research on Holocaust victims, American Indians, Cambodians, and Vietnamese. There has been uh, enough longitudinal data from the Vietnam War now that we can actually see the long-term effects of, um, of trauma. And um, it means that the children and grandchildren even of both veterans and Southeast Asian refugees alike, um, if they are of a descendant who had trauma, they themselves are more likely to display signs of PTSD, including drug and alcohol addiction, somatic problems, problems assimilating memories, problems with violence. But does that mean every single person's going to be like Lee and going out and buying a knife and stabbing people at random or buying a gun and shooting, you know, hundreds of people? No. Um, you can't determine which, which of those people are going to do that. But that fantasy that we can, I think, speaks to two, two drives. One, I said the idea of 
the perfectly regulated society um, that will be offering us perfect protection. But then also I think it goes back into what I was saying before. It fits to a kind of productive model of the United States um, if that, that, that we rely on. If we were to actually say to ourselves, war lasts in our communities and our blood in our, our, our families far longer than the actual physical conflict um, takes place, we would have to really seriously think our our commitments abroad. We would really have to seriously think about what the costs of war are and say maybe it's never worth going to war, which I don't think is a policy we can actually hold. Um, it's not something that we can support over the long term for many different reasons. So being able to say, well, this is over, also benefits us when we say we need to go and send people to war. We need to believe something is over. Otherwise, we may never act again. So, you know, on, on that very basic level, and, it, and it does, again, it goes back to that kind of paradox around trauma. The second thing I, I would say about trauma is if it's a, it's a physical wound, it's also a cultural wound. And you were talking about how the ways in which we open up stories and we open up and continue to open up wounds a lot of the people I spoke to, one of the things they found so traumatic was their parents' memories and the ways they talked about the war. It wasn't that their parents were beating them or using drugs or alcohol or you know, acting in violent ways. It was that their parents would have these fragments of horrific stories that they would begin to tell and not completely tell, not completely finish. And somehow that was just as disorienting or scary to their kids uh, and their grandkids is almost anything else they could imagine. You know, when we talk about trauma, we think that trauma is something that you have to experience personally. But they've also discovered that people who watched the towers fall uh, from 9-11 on video, just watch them. They weren't in New York. They were just watching them on video or on TV or whatever. They themselves, 10 years on, are experiencing some signs of PTSD. You know, we're a culture that continually shows videos and images of traumatic real-life events. We broadcast them endlessly, and we make films and movies of them. And on one hand, you know, I think we all believe that we can distinguish fiction from reality. We can distinguish that's happening on a screen, and I am safe at home. But it's starting to look like maybe we can't as easily. And so when we're talking about how we narrativize trauma, when we, how we display it to each other, we might want to ask ourselves how much are we as a culture um, engaging in re-traumatizing ourselves in general? How much do we like that uh, in a way? And that gets to some sticky ethical issues too because you know, just having witnessed third hand on a video a traumatic you know, event should not raise my experience to the level of someone who has actually experienced that event. Um, so we have to also think about if we are potentially traumatizing ourselves, how do we start talking about levels of claim to that uh, event? Who gets to represent that? Who gets to speak for that? So, you know, <laughs> some of the questions I ask my book are unanswered because in a way I don't think they, you know, we're just now starting to answer some of these questions. Well, in, in a, a more focused scope just around Lee's crime, if you look at the experience of those in the store, in the parking lot, in the Smith parking lot, and the families of the people who were attacked, who may not even have been on site, and their varying experiences and varying attempt to cope with it. Um, some that wanted to find a motive and, and, and to be able to reach closure, and were waiting the trial, and others who felt that there was no possibility for that. And so it was sort of frustrating and painful and more traumatic to be just in, in a waiting stage for the trial and for some sense of closure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the dream that's held out for all of these events, whether it's war or crime or you know, relocation, that there's some sort of catharsis, some sort of healing, some sort of end event that's going to make it all worthwhile. And I, I think that... Um, for those who were waiting for the trial, I mean, it lasted. There was no question that you know Keaton Lee had committed these crimes, but for some reason, it still took three years because they needed to prove that he was mentally competent to stand trial. During that three years, that was agony for the people who um, were the victims of this crime, who were waiting just to, 
you know, give their testimony and leave. Um, they didn't want to continually think about the effects of this crime on their lives. They wanted to start thinking about ways that they could, you know, move past it or integrate it into their past in a way that made them feel like they were in more control. What's interesting also is that people I spoke to, most of them did not blame Lee at all. They they didn't see this as a personal attack. They didn't feel um, any kind of anger towards him that you might expect them to feel. They certainly didn't. <laughs> they wanted to be punished for the crime, but they didn't see it as, uh, in a weird way, a vindictive crime. But even the person on the scene with the gun. And, oh, and, sorry, and wait, well, what I was going to say, and is that because of the element of mental illness or because of the sense of disenfranchisement, um, that, that reaction where somehow uh, he's not to blame? Where, where did you have those um, views coming from? I think that it was both those things. They saw that, you know, both... Well, Kelton was the only one who could truly remember it, but everyone else who talked about seeing him that day said that he just looked blank. He didn't look like anyone was at home. And so for the, for a lot of people on that scene, I think they just saw it as it was almost just like a body was there committing this. It wasn't, it was a sort of a soulless kind of crime in a very strange way. So they didn't see it as, you know, that a person was actually like looking at them. But then also I think you know, Kelton kept talking about the abs- the essential absurdity of the crime. And I think that also made it seem as if um, it was depersonalized. Well, you say even the checker at the market when he was buying the knife, that she right away knew something's not right with this, with him and when he was unpacking the knife right there in the store and started to warn other customers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure that... Um, yeah, I mean, she, she could recognize something was off about him. Um, and what was interesting is one of the, I spoke to the guy who was right behind him in line, Doug Duncan, who had basically been the one with the concealed weapons permit and the concealed gun who managed to get Lee to drop the knife and get on the ground and sort of help stop the attack, essentially. Um, and he could sense that something was a little off. She, in fact, had warned him. Um, and... You know, when I was speaking to him also, he also didn't, interestingly, have anything negative to say about Lee. Um, you know, I think his, one of the other, if, if anyone heard about this crime, it was actually through some of the social media sites devoted to gun ownership and um, Second Amendment rights stuff. And there was a lot of anti-immigration, uh, anti-refugee, very racist kind of language used around that. But that's not something that Doug Duncan would ever have done and certainly you know, never indulged in at all when I spoke to him. He didn't see it as, as any kind of crime like that. He, he also, interestingly, saw it as a kind of absurdity um, that weirdly he had been prepared for his entire life. Um, I mean, I always say that you know, there's if if anybody with a gun on that day um, should have been there, it should have been Doug Duncan because I think most people would have, including myself, would have behaved very recklessly. But Doug had spent his entire life thinking about what it means to protect yourself, what it means to own a gun, and seemed, um, you know, in some ways the best prepared potentially to deal with the after effects of, you know, dealing with a violent crime in which his entire family was there to witness it, which would have on itself be pretty terrifying. But yeah, he, he was very level-headed. The police had even said, yeah. you know, why didn't you shoot him? And he said, why would I? Yeah, I was really struck by that. And so was he. In fact, we talked a lot about that, and we talked a lot about how he thought it was sad that that the police would have, you know, felt that they needed to ramp up um, the language, the, the, to escalate the situation far beyond what it, it could be. Um, he said, you know, I, I didn't shoot him because I, he did everything I asked him to. There was no need to shoot him. Um, but the fact that the first thing out of the cop's mouth was, why didn't you shoot him? Um, I think both Doug and I were quite horrified to, to think about the ramifications of that. And in fact, a man has just been shot in the back in Salt Lake City. Um, you know, <laughs> fleeing, fleeing a scene. So let's talk then a little bit about the effects of the narrative that's developed. You said that someone uh, who had read your research on Lee had said, we'll need a lot more police protection with all these refugees pouring into the country. And based on your 
kind of beginnings of your thesis in the book, one might say, oh, this is likely true, because you're showing this connection between the ongoing trauma between the generations and this lost generation that's experiencing this trauma, and yet it's ungrounded. And yet in reality, there are not more crimes committed by immigrants and refugees than by anyone else in the population. Exactly. In fact, um, one of the safer places to be is in an immigrant um, community, (laughs) Uh, places, states, and communities that have very high numbers of uh, immigrants and refugees have, in general, lower crime statistics. And I go into that in the book as well. There is the other paradox of the book is that, um, you know, if my thesis is ultimately these crimes are spectacular and rare, um, by writing about them as if they are, <laughs> um, you know, making them sensational and interesting, you you feed or I feed into that um, belief that we need to build a wall, we need to get rid of people, um, that this this is not spectacular and rare, this is the normal and average um, occurrence. But it isn't. Um, statistics don't bear that out. Uh, nothing about this has, has been borne out um, over and over again. You can look at statistics in every kind of, you know, way. Um, but by not reporting this crime, for me, the crime is only interesting in relation to the history of the Vietnam War. If you look at it on its own, uh, in some ways it's an easily dismissible crime. Um, You know, only a few people were wounded, you know, seriously, but none fatally. The gun at the scene wasn't even fired. Um, They caught, you know, Lee. There's no question that he did this because he was essentially out of his mind. But the questions I think that the crime raises are more interesting, which is what is it, why was Lee a drug you know, user? Why was he might, might have been having mental health problems? And you know, if Lee is not actually typical of the community, because really he isn't, and in fact, if you look at other statistics about refugees and war, that mental health problems may be elevated, but they're certainly not universal. The, the, the wide, you know, the, the largest bulk of refugees tend to be just fine. But that doesn't mean that all of them are. Um, and oftentimes we overlook that um, statistic as well. And it certainly doesn't mean that every refugee is then going to go out and create, um, with mental health problems is going to create, you know, chaos in his or her community. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that why are we not paying attention to um, some of the rehabilitation and relocation issues that are going to be needing to come up? So Lee is an important figure to me in that respect. I and mean, he reminds me, and I hope he reminds other people about, like, it, you know, what happened to the Southeast Asian refugees doesn't just stay in that one generation. And so his story is one that I think evolved over time. And frankly, um, what was sad about it to me also is that chances are he had been displaying, you know, from the police record, it looks like he'd been displaying violent tendencies for a really long time. But because we had slashed uh, health care budgets speci- uh, specifically around mental health care and drug and alcohol, you know, programs in Utah, essentially the people who were going to be taking care of him were either his own family and community, who had you know, probably strapped finances and resources, or the police. Um, and when we think about where our prisons are headed, they're becoming sort of, as I say in the book, de facto warehouses essentially for the mentally ill. Um, so, you know, Lee's story starts to radiate out, I think, in many different kinds of ways and is there, I think, to remind us of the cost that silence and the cost of not um, paying attention to the mental health profile of our citizens, um, you know, can play on us. You say of the Boston bombing, um, talking about the brothers, you say, by seeing the brothers as simplistic and unthinking reflections of their homeland wars, we give them a subordinate status relative to the native-born citizens whom we invest with agency. They lack our own individuation and ability to make choices because having rejected American values, they cannot reflect them. And it seemed like that was the initial response to Lee because he was yelling about Vietnam. Um, That was not your response. And I guess for my last question, I'm wondering, is uh, broken country and ethical remembering, as you refer to the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur's reference to the World War II um, as the narrative being an, an ethical remem- remembering? And are you pleased with 
with the end result? <laughs> um, I'm giving you a big well, question I'll, for last. It's Alluded. a big question. I am trying to, to, to do what Recur argued for in memory, history, and forgetting, which is to create an ethical memory around war. And his argument was that you know, war includes pretty much everybody, but we usually only reserve our memorials and our histories for the direct combatants. We don't talk about the women who were raped. We don't talk about the children who were displaced. We don't talk about, um, you know, the mentally ill. We don't talk about the people who um, are illiterate. We don't tend to talk about the people with physical disabilities. The list goes on and on. And, you know, there's also a kind of paradox inherent in that. To really list all the people that were affects, you would almost have to have this insane catalog that we'd be almost impossible to actually fathom. But that was his point, which is that I think at some point, um, you know, we are we are constantly asking ourselves to forget in service to preserving a kind of narrative that makes the unanswerable, the, the insane, make sense. Um, and so I am trying to put people back into a kind of memory of war. Lee is important to me because he is exactly the kind of person that both Asian America, um, Southeast Asians, and uh, Americans in general don't want to remember. He's not a productive member of society. He's not the model minority that a lot of Asians are portrayed as being. He is indigent, and he's violent, and he's angry, and he is, you know, mentally ill. He's all of these things, and yet he's exactly who we want to erase. But he is also, I think, um, an accidental product or a continuation of our thinking about this war. And part of having an ethical memory of war is not just looking at the things that make us look good or can soothe us or to make us feel better. It's also looking at the things that disturb us, the things that we haven't solved, the things that and the people that we have not fully reckoned with. And so if Lee is invisible to all of these different communities, I think it is important to remember Lee's place in history, the crime, and he may have no individual meaning, but I think in terms of a historical meaning, I think he does mean something to us. And so that is that is kind of what I want us to, to imagine. Um, am I happy with the book? I mean, the, the thing about war, as I was saying before, is that there's always something. There's an, always another name. There's always another event. There's always another fact. There's always another something um, that, we, that can, can enrich the story. And so in some sense, I'll, I'll never be satisfied with this book. But, you know, consider I, I came out of poetry, and this is a, <laughs> a wild shift for me. This probably is the best I can do. But it, I, I can say that this book has utterly changed me. Um, I would not be the writer and the thinker I am now without having undergone the intense research um, and the, the kinds of conversations I was, I was privileged to have with so many people over the last three years. Um, people shared things with me that I... I am still amazed by and I'm touched by, and it made me feel incredibly responsible for everything that they told me. And um, I think that, you know, to end, I mean, that's one of the final, I think, benefits and maybe even curses of narrative. When someone tells you a story, it enters you, but you also become responsible for it. Um, you, you've got to, it's part of you, and um, it's a precious thing, no matter how painful it is. Well, Paisley Rectal, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And your book, The Broken Country on Trauma, a Crime, and the Continuing Legacy of Vietnam, was a deep and rich adventure to have thank read it so and much. be reading it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right, Paisley, it was wonderful to speak with you and really a deep, deep, rich book. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Okay. And um, I look forward to it. Good. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.